GOB with Christy and Kathy, where we talk about writing, reading, and life in between. I'm Christy in South Florida. And I'm Kathy in South Dakota. We're two newbie writers who share our love of food, wine, and crime fiction. We have interviews with best-selling and award-winning authors on our Corks and Conversation episodes. And this season, we are adding to the fun with POV episodes, where we explore topics in quick, informative episodes. Join us for today's episode. We're thrilled to be here with Michael Ferris-Smith, author of our GOB Rex November Book of the Month, Salvage This World. So I reviewed his book on an episode earlier in the month, and so hopefully many of uh, you guys out there have read the book um, or had a chance to because it is so good. But Michael also has a couple of movies that just came out um, based on his other books. So I think we have a lot to talk about, Kathy. Okay, so I can't wait to get started, but I do want to tell everybody a little bit about the author that we're with today before we get in, involved in this great conversation. Michael Ferris-Smith has published seven novels in the past decade. His work has been characterized as darkly poetic, an unflinching exploration of hard lives and hard choices set among atmospheric landscapes that illuminate hills and valleys of his native Mississippi. Uh, Michael Ferris Smith is also, very importantly, a screenwriter of two newly released feature films. They're adapt adaptations of his novels, Desperation Road and The Fighter. The novel, The Fighter, was um, titled in the movie, Rumble Through the Dark. And you'll be able to find those and we'll talk to him about how to do that. In addition, two more of his novels, Blackwood and Rivers, are also set for adaptation. Uh, his latest novel, Salvage This World, was released in hardcover in April and is forthcoming as a paperback this spring. With Salvage This World, the New York Times hailed Smith as an intoxicating literary stylist. I can't wait to ask him what that was like to get that kind of review. And mm -hmm. the New York Times also described the book, Salvage This World, as bruising, bracing read by a hell of a writer. Mr. Smith, who's with us today, lives in Oxford, Mississippi with his wife and daughters. Michael, it's so great to have you. Thank you for joining Hi us. Hi there. Yeah, of course. Thank you for the invitation and thank you for the nice introduction. And it's uh, good to talk to you. I want to say you had the uh, most unusual request for your <laughs> cocktail um, on the podcast so far, and it's a Manhattan. Mm, so yes. I, I have to tell you, I, I was going to join you with that, and then I'm not. I don't. I didn't have. I didn't have any of the ingredients in my house. So when I went to when I went to the liquor store, I was like, you know what? Unless I'm planning on having a Manhattan party, I don't know if I can afford this right now. So I'm just going to stick with, with wine. But I did find a wine that kind of goes with the book. It's called Prophecy. Ooh. Oh, nice. Very yeah. nice. Because, I mean, there is sort of a prophecy aspect to this book, I think. Oh, yeah. Yeah, very accurate, I would say. Yeah. Well, I am having a little Malbec. Christy's having a prophecy. What kind of wine is that, Christy? It is a Pinot Grigio. Very nice. Nice. And in Manhattan. Well, I'm a bourbon guy. It is a little early in the day to drink just bourbon neat or bourbon on the rocks. So I was like, maybe <laughs> I'll just mix up a Manhattan, you know? Yeah. Okay, um, so for those of us who don't know, what's in a Manhattan? Manhattan is uh, the way we make it and is two ounces of 
bourbon. In this case, I'm using uh, Michter's. I'm using a rye actually, Michter's rye, and mm. it's a uh, half half ounce of vermouth, and then it's uh, typically orange bitters. I do orange bitters, but I also have these really great black walnut bitters that give it a oh, really yeah. really nice taste. So I do. Couple of shakes of orange bitters, couple of shakes of black walnut bitters, and then I don't have an orange uh, peel today, but typically just a little orange peel, and uh, also typically a black cherry goes into it. But I just skip all the all the I skip all that extra work, you know. <laughs> yeah, the Michael Ferris Smith Manhattan is vermouth, uh, Michter's rye, and a couple of shakes of orange bitters, a couple of shakes of black walnut. Bitters. It Love does it. sound really good. It sounds it so is wonderful. Pretty good. All right, next time we're in Mississippi, Kathy. <laughs> I know, yeah. I know. Well, let's have a toast, you guys, before we get started to my this beautiful book. Cheers. 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 I'm going to get started and <laughs> I just have to tell you that I love so many aspects of this book and mm -hmm. the story itself has so many layers to it. But one layer that I was really surprised that I liked so much was the fact that it's set in the future. Ordinarily, I don't think about that as some as a book that I would gravitate for, but I really liked it. And I'm wondering what inspired you to write it that way? And was it like to open our eyes to what could happen or was it just for fun? Really good question. Uh, Salvage This World actually came about as a reaction. My very first novel, Rivers, which was in 2013, I really took this landscape and went a lot deeper. I, I really imagined... Um, a Gulf Coast and a, a South Mississippi and Louisiana where the storms are coming one after another for several years to the point to where the government draws a, a, a geographical boundary 90 miles north of the coastline across the Panhandle and over to Texas. And they say, we're not going to govern this area anymore. And if you stay below, you're on your own. We just don't have time. We can't fix it anymore. Like there's no way to rebuild. Mm -hmm. And Rivers is about the people who we all know will stay behind and just the kind of lawlessness and it's very much like the wild west and that that story came to be because of the effect of katrina on me i think as a mississippian and, and seeing this landscape and seeing the hurt and the pain and I, I wasn't comfortable writing a katrina novel because i didn't want to manipulate that real thing that it hurt so many people i knew but i, I just had the thought one day what if instead of a hurricane novel you wrote the hurricane novel and that's when the idea for Rivers was born. And and while it is dystopian, too, uh, Rivers felt strangely close, um, I think, even though it's it's even beyond Salvage This World. But people kept asking me, do you think there'll ever be another part to Rivers? I always kind of thought there would be another part to Rivers, but the idea of writing a sequel to that, because the first sentence of Rivers is, it had been raining for weeks, maybe months. And I surely didn't want to start a novel as a sequel, the first sentence was, well, it's still raining. You know, I, just, I, I, I couldn't do that anymore. Nothing's I was so changed. psyched. Nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. So, so when I had the idea for Salvage This World and the, the opening image of the young woman standing with a kid on her hip staring at the thunderclouds, um, I just thought, well, what if this is six or seven years before? What if the storms are more frequent, but we're not there yet, but the the region is beginning to shrink away. These towns are beginning to disappear. There is less and less order. There's less and less resources. And quite honestly, if you drive across South Louisiana and some of these places in Mississippi and, even, and Arkansas, you see this 
already because after every mm-hmm. storm, fewer people come back. They don't have an economy. They don't have an infrastructure, and it just gets worse and worse. So I thought that was that was the idea I felt like I've been looking for. Like I wanted to come at rivers from a different way, and that was the opportunity to do that because I did love that landscape, and I do think it's a lot closer to being real than a lot of us want to admit, you know. I kind of thought, like I was telling Kathy, I mean, if you didn't live here, if you weren't American and you were reading this, you know, you may think that that's really what it's like. And like you said, parts of it almost are, but I could just picture it as I could see it. It's not too far in the future, it feels like, you know. No, no, it's not. This is my question, um, is that Christy and I always kind of um, come up with our own questions of what really appeals to us most about the book. We had a very similar take. And I was wondering, I'm fascinated by dystopian works anyway. I... um, but especially right now, and there's so many aspects of our world that feel somewhat dystopian in reality. Yeah. Weather for sure. Um, but there's also the communities eroding, like you say, the economy shrinking. And like this morning, I was waiting for the economic report that was coming out um, of the Fed. I was really watching for that and with a kind of a sinking feeling. And so if you're if you've lived this with this weather and you've seen this firsthand, what is it like to to be writing this? Is there a release or is it cathartic? Are you working through? How does that feel to be writing this? Wow, wow. That, that's a that's a good question. Uh, I think um, I think part of it is I can't ignore things that are around me. Um, I don't think any writer, any artist can. It's in, it's impossible to ignore what's going on around you. And like you said, there are so many horrifyingly dystopian things happening right now and have been happening in the last six, seven, or eight years that uh, uh, you, you kind of thought, you almost think it's made up, but it's not made up. Um, I do think it's the Mississippi I see. I think it's the Mississippi I worry about. I think it's probably partly my way of coping with it in some way, being cathartic. I also think it's my way of trying to just, uh, I think as an artist, to just shove it forward you know, Mm -hmm. and take chances with it and say, we do have one reality, but we have many realities. And this is one that we're staring down the barrel of, you know, because I really feel like we do. I mean, just economically speaking, Mississippi, like we just had a governor's election last week and the wrong guy won again. Oh, I was so optimistic that he, he the right guy was. I, we all were, and there's there's just so many shenanigans that go on down here. I really like if, if if we could just have a straight up election that made it easy for people to vote. I think it would have been a, a different um, outcome because a lot of people are sick of it, you know. And part of part of the winners' uh, campaign was the economy in Mississippi and how much they've done for it. Where our economy is like 48th in the nation, like we're the <laughs> one of the only states in the nation that people are actually leaving we lose two percent of our population every year because there's nothing here so i think part of me too and i I, truly i think that the temple of pain and glory was my way of dealing with people are willing to open their mouths and just be spoon-fed whatever not to keep going so i mean this mississippi is such a complex place and you know Mm -hmm. i'm ripping off faulkner when i say things (laughs) like that but I, i I think when I'm writing something like this and when I'm writing about this place, it's a combination of a lot of things. And I think I'm trying to be as honest as I can to it, which not a lot of people are willing to do. Mm-hmm. Isn't there some sort of, I don't know, obligation, but also like a real pride in knowing a place really, really well and being the one to talk about 
the good stuff, but also the really hard stuff. I mean, I, mm-hmm. you know, like you say, people aren't willing to do things, but you were. Right. Yeah. I mean, there is, and I think I've earned it. You know, <laughs> I think a lot <laughs> of us here have earned it. And it, mm-hmm. you know, I get asked all the time when I'm leaving, why, why I don't mm-hmm. leave. And I'll be, I'll be truthful. I think about it um, mm-hmm. a lot, but then I, I think if I do leave, then I've become part of the problem. Mm-hmm. And uh, I want to be part of the solution. And this is a, this was a conversation I had with people at the bar on election night when we knew what was going down. And we were just like, I don't know why we stay here. But then we were like, well, we got to stay because we're the only chance um, mm-hmm. we have. And there are more of us than you than you think. And there's more of us every day. But I do. I feel like I've earned it and there's honesty to it. And I've seen it. And I left Mississippi for 10 years and I looked at it from a distance. And I truthfully think that has a lot to do with the way I'm able to look at it and write about it now because I got that distance from it. Mm-hmm. I really feel that. I um, I live in South Dakota and love a lot about my state and I just like a lot about my state. And yeah. what, I, what I learned the most when I moved away and then I chose to come back. And I, that's when I really, my eyes were really more opened. I think, you know, absence does give you some clarity maybe. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I think so. Some clarity, some ob- objectivity some sensibility and no place is perfect and no place is perfect. And you get, when you're away from it, you get away from the things that people say every day that have affected the way your thought patterns and your belief systems. And I think that's important too. Mm-hmm. I mean, I grew up the son of a, I'm, I'm the son of a Southern Baptist preacher. I've heard, I've heard it all <laughs> since I was big enough to hear, you know oh, what I mean? Oh man. Yeah. And, and so to, at the age of 21, 22 to, to walk away from that and leave this place and all of a sudden hear the voices of other people and the takes of other people and uh, kind of look back and go, hmm, and meet different people too. Right. Um, mm-hmm. um, I was like, okay, maybe uh, <laughs> maybe that's not all correct. No, right, or maybe, yeah. it's not, it's, maybe it's not all what I'm willing to accept. Yeah. Yeah, I just saw something there. I had a program where they were doing that with kids, like high school kids. And they were doing like two weeks in, in like the complete opposite of their environment. Like if they were city, then they went and spent two weeks with a family in the middle of the, you know, rural area, totally different, you know, viewpoints and politics and everything. And then reverse the same kids went to the other. And it was it was fascinating because they did. You can find common common ground. <laughs> Anyway, before we go too deep into this, I think I should ask another more light (laughs) question. (laughs) Sure. Okay. So speaking of all that we've talked about, I just loved the descriptions and the way you described scene and action with just like limited dialogue. And, you know, exposition is sometimes not the most interesting, but you make it so interesting that, you know, we're just, the story is going forward. Just love the way you write. Then you decided to write screenplays, which are almost like all dialogue. So yeah. how did you make that switch? Why did you make that switch? And um, what do you think? Well, the, the why is because um, I was given the opportunity and I've heard so many horror stories over the years of writers who have their film made and they don't even recognize it. And I really didn't want that to happen. I don't think anybody wants that to happen. Um, so when I was offered the opportunity to be taxed to screenwriter, my answer was yes. And I remember the phone call, it was like four or five people on the phone call. And the next question was, well, can you do it? 
And I said, yeah, yes. That's what I was thinking. Of course I can. Like, of course I can. What do you think? And uh, as soon as that call was over, yeah, sure, why not? Uh, as soon as that phone call was over, I pe- immediately picked up the phone and called my manager who was on the phone. I said, I need to know two books about script writing that I need to order right now and start learning how to do this. And he just laughed. He goes, I knew, I knew that was where you were with this. He goes, but that was the absolute correct answer. Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, I wanted to be involved too. And I wanted to do something different. You know, you sit alone in a room so long writing novels and I just, I like doing different things and it seemed like a a different creative medium and, you know, and and why not? So it just worked out that I was able to do it effectively. Um, I think I was a little bit inclined toward it because when I write fiction and when I've always written fiction, one of the best pieces of writing advice I ever got, I can't remember who gave it to me, but it was, a long time ago when I was getting started, I was sitting in a workshop somewhere and the person said, um, you know, when you're writing a scene, you're writing prose, you should imagine you're sitting in a theater and there's a person sitting next to you and they're blindfolded and you have to explain to them, you have to describe what's happening on the screen Mm -hmm. because you wouldn't just say, okay, there's a farm. You would say there's an old weathered barn house. There are a couple of chickens in the yard. There are thunderclouds in the background. There's a little girl uh, playing on a tractor over on the right. And you have to hit the image. You have to hit it quick because the screen changes, but you got to give that person what you're seeing. So that made a tremendous amount of sense to me clearly because I'm still talking about it. But I Mm -hmm. think when I, as a beginning writer and starting out, I was thinking like cinematically because of that piece of advice. So I think perhaps I was more suited to make the transition from writing prose to working on a screenplay because that's my mindset when I sit down to work in the morning, when I'm working on a novel, when I'm writing fiction, I have that in the back of my head. Like there's somebody sitting here blindfolded. Let's help them see everything that you see and see the right things. And let's not waste anything because we got to keep going. Well, thank you for that. That was... That was kind of good advice to spread out, you know. It's great advice, and I, but I do think that's why your absolutely gorgeous writing does transcend so well. You can see exactly what you're trying to have your reader see, and so mm-hmm. I, wow, okay, that works. Yes, I like you. that. Okay, so listen, it's time. Oh, look at her already reaching. So we're midway, Michael, and we do a thing called question the bottle. Maybe it's a question that you might get to at the end of a bottle, or in our case, Manhattan. <laughs> all right let's see Hmm. if you could be the world's best athlete in any sport which would it be and why this is a really good question i have two answers one's the not not the real answer the other one's the real answer i always thought it'd be awesome to be like the best decathlete in the world you know to be like an olympic decathlete you do 10 different things and you do them all great and you're just a badass. Like there's no other way around it. You know, the diversity of those events and of that training, everything. However, I'm a baseball player. I grew up playing baseball from the time I was six years old to the time I was 21. I played shortstop and I always thought the coolest thing in the world would be the best, be a major league shortstop. So if I had to put on my dream hat, I would be like the major, the you know, the starting shortstop for the Yankees or the Dodgers or one of those big uh, glamour teams like that. Oh, yeah. What about you, Kathy? Have you ever thought about being an athlete? <laughs> uh, no. Um, I, I was a ballet dancer earlier, and I, I love ballet. But I will say I took on, I took on running later in life. Mm. And I feel bad because it's not a team sport, so it seems kind of... <laughs> but 
I really, I still get tears every time I watch a marathon and I see, you know, especially people who are helping each other through the gate, you know, I just, yeah. it's such an exclusive. So, so what you have to do is you have to yeah. be running a marathon, the best runner in the world with me. And I start collapsing <laughs> and you pull me over the Come on, <laughs> I could see that. I, I could see yeah, that. I totally can see that. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I've, run, I've run half marathons. I've never run a full. So I, that's for me. It'd be the full. How about you? I Christy? saw a bumper sticker that said recently that said, um, like, what is it? 13.1. And then it said, yeah. I'm only half crazy. <laughs> oh, that's, fair. Uh, that's pretty good <laughs> that's fair yep. yeah. right, miss christy you you're you have to answer now too is your question i love all i love all sports but i um i don't know swimmer mm. yeah yeah amazing that's not bad. a big swimmer yeah. stand up on the podium with my medals and <laughs> yeah my oldest daughter was a uh, competitive swimmer for about five or six years it was so much fun watching those kids do that. I really, I really love it. I had swimmers yeah, too, Yeah, it's Michael. sort of like a combination of a team <sighs> sport it. and an individual mm -hmm. yeah. sport. So yeah. it just makes it, yeah. you know, and, you know, you can meditate a lot while you're swimming laps, I guess. <laughs> I'm sure every sport has um, fantastic parents involved, but I, that was, of all the things my kids tried, I love the families in those, at those meets. Like I just, people were just... Mm -hmm cheering for the last one to come in, you know, like that was just <laughs> yeah. so fun, as fun as it was to see the first, so. That's right. All right, listen, I'm gonna have a little sip here and mm -hmm. I am super excited to segue into life balance, writing, publishing, kind of the day-to-day -day stuff. Um, I am, we both are truly thrilled to meet you and learn about your incredible, the amount of success that you are realizing right now with multiple movies and screenplays and books in the works. Um, but I am certain it did not come easily or quickly. And I would love to know what your thoughts are about success now. I put like this success, what it took to, to get here. And I understand that you're more recently now writing full time. And so I'd love to know your thoughts about that. Especially for us, we're newbie writers right. and can't even imagine it, you know? Yeah. Uh, the thing that I had to learn and I remember when this clicked in my brain and I thought, if you don't make it habitual and you don't do a little something every day, you're just never going to make it. Um, at that time, I was facing a lot of rejection. I had published some stories. I had stopped and started a couple of novels. None of them, they weren't working. I was kind of getting to the point where I'm like, it, it's, you know, I had one young daughter at the time. I had another young daughter on the way. I was teaching full time. Uh, my mm -hmm. wife works full time. She had a job where she was gone one or two nights a week. And it really just hit me that if you don't start making, stop making excuses and find something to do every day, you just might as well forget it. Um, and that was the moment when I started getting up in the morning, uh, taking my daughter to daycare. And as soon as I dropped her off, go to a little writing space. Mm -hmm. um, at that time, it would be a coffee shop or just somewhere out of the house and work for, th if I had 30 minutes, work for 30 minutes. If I had 45 minutes, work for 40, and just do that Monday through Friday and see what would happen. And that's how Rivers was written. Rivers was written, it's a 100,000 word novel. It was written about a year and a half with me working that way. Because what I began to see was, even if I went for 30 minutes, 45 minutes, I was focused, I did it before I had to go teach. 
I did it before I had to go be daddy. I did it before I had to run errands. I had did it before I did everything. And I had that time in the morning, right out of the gate that I just put my head down and did it. And it, sometimes it was a hundred words. Sometimes it was, you know, 400, 500 words, but I would look, I looked up after about three or four weeks and I looked at my word count. I'm like, okay, we're, we're actually moving down. We're moving down the road. Like there's something to work with here. Whereas before I was, frustrated with it all, getting a rejection letter and getting depressed for a week and not doing anything, kind of stabbing at it here and stabbing at it there. And it's just, just not the way to do it. But when I realized, even if I give it 30 minutes every morning, the tool got really, the tool got sharper because I was there every day. I think my imagination stayed churning and stayed away from the doubt and stayed away from the uh, hopelessness of mm-hmm. it all. And quite honestly, it was the desperation of it too, with another another daughter on the way. And I, there's nothing wrong with teaching for a living, but that wasn't my goal. I mean, my goal was to be mm-hmm. a writer, and, and I was kind of giving up on that. And it was when I sat down and decided just bang my head against the against the laptop for 20, 30, 40 minutes, whatever I had every morning right out of the gate. Um, that's when things changed. And then when Brooklyn was born, we had I had gotten Rivers published. And I found myself a little studio space out of the house so that mm-hmm. because somehow with two children, my, my desk had become the place where all the bills landed or oh, all, there were toys yeah. all around. I'm like, imagine trying to write fiction or create art with a stack of bills, like sitting there right, right. beside you is not, not the way to do it. And I had a good friend who actually, uh, I was talking about t- talking about this at lunch one day with him who gave me a writing space. He goes, you can, you can use this little space downtown. It's storage. It's going to be storage one day, but right now it's empty if you want to just use it. And I did, I put a, a table and a laptop and a coffee maker and my guitar up there. And that's where I would go. I'd take the girls to daycare and go right there in the morning, do my work and then go teach and, and do everything else. And that's what I wrote rivers, desperation road, Nick, the fighter, Blackwood, uh, five novels, just like that. Wow. I'm thinking that that was, I mean, I'm overwhelmed by that generosity. And for him, it was like, yeah, go ahead and use that. And for you, what it, what an incredible gift that was. It was so incredible to have that space mm-hmm. of my own. Because what I found, too, in the going to every, every morning is your, uh, your tool gets sharper and your imagination keeps turning. But also, it's like when you work out at 10 o'clock. Say uh, you go and work out. You go to the gym every day at 10 a.m. Your body gets used to that and your body gets ready for that. And if you like try to work out at two or three because you missed it, like it's a tough, it's usually a tougher workout and your body doesn't respond because you, I think you're mentally prepared and subconsciously like your body's getting ready for that. I found the same thing about going every morning. Like I think subconsciously I was getting ready for it and I was prepared for it to walk in there and to do it. So even now, Salvage This World is the first novel I've written, not teaching full time. But even now, when I have one daughter, she's a freshman in college, and my other one's 12, but I still take my 12-year-old to to school, and then I go right to it first thing in the morning. And, um, Mm -hmm. you know, people think you need these, it's romantic, and you need these big chunks of time, and you lay away puffing your pipe, and, like, all of a sudden, lightning (laughs) strikes, and here's this book. (laughs) It's not that way at all. Like, I had to decide I'm either going to fail by not doing it, or I'm going to fail by doing it a little bit at a time. And I decided I'd rather fail by doing it a little bit at a time if that was the option. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. fortunately, it turned out the other way. That's very inspiring. You know, you hear it all the time. Oh, you need to write every day, write every day. But 
like you said, you have to put your mind to it. You can't be just saying it, you know, you have to set that time aside and it's hard to do, but once you do it, it's, it's like exercise, any kind of exercise. Yeah. And it doesn't, it doesn't have to be a lot. It's just those, those moments you have alone when that's what you're looking at and thinking about. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I say sometimes I had 30 minutes, I would walk into my space at eight 11 and know that I had to be gone at eight 40 and Mm -hmm. open up the laptop and just take, just go. Love that. Okay, so Michael, I finished two novels this weekend. Both writers of those novels were from Oxford, Mississippi. <laughs> one, oh, yeah. one was one was you, and 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 obviously um, Salvage, and the other was um, John Grisham's latest. And mm-hmm. it, I was not lost um, by the fact that I'm reading two novels uh, by two men from this area, and I was wondering what it is like to write in and be from a place that has such a strong, I guess, literary um, presence. You know, you talk about probably the shadow of William Faulkner, who is also yeah. from Oxford, Mississippi. What's it like to work and write there? Uh, this is a good question. I get asked this a lot. Um, it's really rewarding to uh, be able to walk into the bar, the local tavern, city grocery, and see other writers and see other artists and musicians and painters. We have a tremendous artistic community here. Um, I take it as a sense of pride. I do. Um, Every time I'm outside of the state of Mississippi, I get asked, what's what's it like to be a Mississippi writer, you know, with the literary history and all. And it's kind of similar to this question. Although, you know, like, I think there's so many working and publishing writers in Oxford right now. We're kind of having like a Mississippi renaissance. You know, there's (laughs) at least, you know, 10 to 15 writers here who published books in the last two years, you know, and um, it's it's really inspiring. And uh, I think it normalizes it, too, because it's easy to feel like the strange animal in the zoo when you tell people you're Mm -hmm. a writer because they don't really get it. But it's normalized around here and i think that um in some ways takes a little of the anxiety and doubt out of it and anything that can remove a shred of that mm-hmm. is always a good thing you know as far as mm-hmm. the like faulkner shadow and you know even statewide like willie morris well willie morris spent time here too but eudora welty and richard wright and tennessee williams when i was starting out i didn't like feel that that was a weight or something to be intimidated by but i'm like i saw that as the example that it could be done to pave the road yeah yeah like william faulkner was from dirt you know miss welty i mean they're all from nothing richard wright what he went through um as a black man in mississippi during that time i mean i saw it in tennessee williams too uh, i saw it and i'm like okay it's possible like mm-hmm. it's possible for me to be a a great Mississippi writer if I work hard enough. Whether I am or not, that's yet to be determined. Who knows and who cares? I don't know. But but the fact <laughs> is, like, those, those were examples for me. And it wasn't the yeah. shadow. It wasn't the weight of it. But it was, this is this is possible. And I really love that hope of it, you know? That, mm-hmm. And that's how I've always seen the literary history here. And I think that's how I see being part of this community, too, is... Um, there's a lot of potential and possibility in just being part of it all and looking at one another and realizing what we can do and what you can do if you go sit in if you go sit in that room, you know. There you go. There you go. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm just gonna circle back to the New York Times comments. I don't know. I think I'd be pretty over the moon if I was told that I was a 
hell of a writer and an intoxicating literary stylist by the New York Times Review. I think that, I think that might give me at least a minute to be like, okay, I've I've done pretty well. <laughs> Just today. Yeah. Just today. Yeah. 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 Cheers to that. Yeah. Cheers right? to that. Right? Yeah. We'll take let that. me tell you a funny. Let me let me tell you a quick little funny story about the relationship between all the writers here. During my book launch event at Square Books here, the great indie bookstore in Oxford. They, uh, you know, read bits of that review, including the intoxicating literary stylist, and somebody <laughs> in the back raised their hand, and they said, "Don't you mean intoxicated, intoxicated. literary stylist?" <laughs> well, that's that's what it's like to be a writer here in Oxford. That's it in a nutshell, like right there. <laughs> well, Michael, it's been an absolute pleasure um, talking to you today. And if listeners want to reach out, what's the best way for them to be in touch? My website, MichaelFerrisSmith.com, has contact information, but it also has pretty much everything, interviews about the books, um, about the movies, uh, and on and on and on. It's all there. I Yeah, I'll make sure I have the link on our website, on the show notes, and, um, you know, I'm going to go back and read some of your other books. Now I want to read The River. It actually, I think, would be an interesting experiment to read Rivers now that you've read Salvage's World. Yeah, yeah. River, well Rivers being about six or seven years, I think, after Salvage end, it ends. Okay. All right. Yeah, so they can probably find links to, to buy your books on your website as well. So, um, And uh, what are you working on now? Are you working on anything you can tell us about? Uh, just I have a new novel churning around that I've <laughs> barely barely started on. It's It's been a really interesting few months. Uh, Desperation Road came out October the 6th. Rumble Through the Dark came out just this past weekend on November 10th. And uh, so so there's been a lot of distraction, which is fine. And I, you know, starting to kind of toward the end of the summer, we started moving toward that with promo and things Mm -hmm. like that. And uh, uh, when I write, when I write a novel, I need that every day. And I didn't want to, I didn't want to be jabbing at it. So I'm like, you know what? I think I'll just sit back and enjoy everything that's happening. And then when it's over, we'll settle back into that little quiet, little lonely room i know so, i know so both those movies just in theaters right now or are they streaming oh uh, they're actually both available now on amazon prime and apple tv okay okay, okay we will we will include links to that because i that yeah, I, yeah. yeah. yeah please do. <laughs> yeah and they're both they're both very faithful adaptations which i'm very happy about good we we need to have a whole other episode talking about that but anyway <laughs> <laughs> Let's give a toast to you, and congratulations, Michael. Cheers to you. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. Subscribe to our podcast on our website, gameofbookspodcast.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you liked what you heard, you can give us a five-star rating or review. You can also subscribe on YouTube, where you can watch and listen. On GameOfBooksPodcast.com, you can find all the information about what we talked about on this episode. And you can sign up for our newsletter and enter our fun contests and giveaways. We also post our stories and links on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Hope to see you there. I can guarantee you that we had fun today. And we hope you did too. Cheers.